The song starts off soft. It's contemplative. It's, it's deeply devotional. Jesus, the name above every name, worthy of every breath that I live for you. Over and over again, the song, the phrase, there is not one like you. Beside you, open my eyes. Show me who you are and where you want me to go. Lead me. The last line is repeated over and over. More determination. Getting louder again and again and again. And then there's a segue. Again, soft. Quietly you hear a voice singing, I will build my life upon your life, Lord. It is my firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone and I will not be shaken. And again, it gets louder. It's sung once and then the drums enter. It's sung again and the bass gets louder. The beat, the energy, the enthusiasm, you can feel it in your heart. It's its strong, it's vibrant. I'm loving it. Back again to holy, there is none beside you. Show me who you are and where you want to lead me. And again, louder and louder, faster and faster, chills up my spine. And here it comes. The liturgist, as the music is singing, can you feel it? Can you see it? The Lord is in this place. The Spirit is present. He's calling you. He's speaking to you. What is that voice in your head? What is he telling you to do? Is it? And then comes the suggestions. And then the abrupt quiet. Music softly playing. I will put my trust in you alone. The congregation sings. I will not be shaken. Now would you pray with me? Says the liturgist. Lord, thank you. I know you are present. Your Holy Spirit is real. I can feel you. I can hear you. Your voice is in my head. And I'm out there praying. And I'm loving it. I'm feeling the emotion that I didn't feel all week. It moves me. I feel the needed, the much needed uplift. I've been so alone as a Christian all week. It's been a hard week living and working in this world. I begin to wonder if it's all true. I begin to wonder if what I believe is legit and alive. Is it just not some old-fashioned stuff that we remember? Is it? Is Jesus still alive? I feel it. I know it. This is exciting. I look around me and there are many others who feel it as well. And I'm confirmed in my belief that it's real and the voice is real. And it's time then for me to let it go, to trust the Lord. It's time. I'm going to ask her to marry me. It's time. I'm going to quit my job. It's time. Have you the gift of prophecy? Does someone you know have the gift of prophecy? Do you believe even in prophecy? 
what I mean by prophecy, of course, is, is quite generally agreed. All traditions, prophecy is a supernatural word or communication from God. Now, I'm going to ask you again. Do you believe that God continues to speak to you, to us? Do you want it in your life? Lest you would deny the church one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit today is also to deny a person with that gift the joy of obedience to God and using it for God's glory and the benefit of God's covenant people. I hope you did not answer no. Stated quite clearly in Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He's talking to the post-ascension Christ or of the church. And the next line, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Clearly, Paul believed the gift of prophecy exists. Or worse still, if you said no, are you guilty of quenching the Holy Spirit? I mean, isn't it plain? 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesying. This would be a serious thing to quench the Spirit. If you understand the doctrine of salvation, there is no salvation apart from the Holy Spirit. There is no transformation of life. There is no what we call effectual calling under regeneration. There is no real divine wisdom. I hope you said, yes, I believe in prophecy. Even today. For without prophecy, the Spirit would be quenched. Okay, then. We got that settled. I hope we have it settled, but I don't know that we do. Most of the churches that are growing today believe in prophecy and speak about it often. It's one of perhaps the most predictable indicators of a growing church movement. Is that their services and their pastors and their congregants enter with an expectation of God being alive, God being real, God speaking into my life and speaking into my life that makes a difference, not just in abstract, vague platitudes. I sense I've got your attention. Because down deep you know it's true. Now, there is this other aspect. I mean, the Thessalonians passage itself, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast, to only that which is good. Hmm. So true prophecy must be proven as such, even as this is a command to do so in the church. We think as well in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
The assumption in both of these scriptures, of course, is that there is, that, that just saying it's prophecy doesn't make it necessarily prophecy. Let me repeat that. Just saying that it is prophecy doesn't necessarily mean that it is prophecy. Okay, I begin to hear you now. I can hear what you're thinking. Here it comes. I knew it. I knew he was setting me up. I knew it. Am I just, and I know what you're thinking, am I just an insecure pastor whose church isn't as growing as fast as maybe the church down the street? Is this the pastor who's defensive and defiant and envious and, well, maybe. Something to consider, honestly. Well, perhaps I'm stuck in my dead tradition. I'm a deadhead Christian, you know, always looking back and not into the future. A kind of Christianity that always wants to remember. But the old stuff doesn't seem to fit the new stuff of my life. You know, what Christ was and did then, but doesn't do anymore. Kind of Christianity. Not active. Not alive. And most importantly, not still speaking to us. Well, again, perhaps guilty is charged. Maybe I, maybe we are quenching the spirit. Maybe we are despising, not prophesying. Well, whether I am speaking out of my insecurity or envy, or whether I am sounding a lot like Paul in 1 Timothy is something that I want to ask you to discern with me over the course of the next many sermons on 1 Timothy. I invite you to do it. I'm not so sure what I would want more out of this series. On the one hand, if there is any remnant of deadness in this church, if there's any remnant of hiding behind orthodoxy so that we don't have to be alive and we can just dutifully do Christianity, God blow it up. But on the other hand, if we need perhaps to be encouraged that we are on, at least generally, philosophically, theologically, or whatever you want to call it, the right path, that there is a path of being alive and transformed and converted and born again, but, but it might not be the path of the populace always. And it might not be the, the straight and easy and immediately satisfying path. But more importantly, it might not be true. For if you think about it, as I listened to that song again this morning, thinking and loving it honestly, clearly Christianity should be alive, and clearly there's something right about that music that would venture into the world of letting my whole person, emotions and all, experience the fullness of Christ. But on the other hand, I thought, what just happened here? I saw last night watching the Olympics. 
I saw in a movie that I saw the other day. The music with a little bit of narrative. A music that just tickles my inner emotions like like nothing can do. And I find myself crying all the time. Or going, yeah! Wanting to walk out and conquer the world. I mean, it would be nothing to take the exact same song that I heard this morning and put it into a political rally, put it into an atheist uh, convention, and it would have the exact same effect. It raises the question, doesn't it? Let's pray. Father, come. I sense, Lord, and I don't mean that prophetically, but Lord, I sense that we are in a very dangerous time. We see around us a church that is insecure, defensive, worried, scared. We hunger, Lord, for definitive answers. We hunger for moral clarity. We hunger for truth and for you to speak into our lives that we would just know, that we would know what to do. And yet we also see even our church growing mostly where there is a kind of expectancy of prophecy that perhaps might be the very danger of the true church, at least as Paul understands it here. So help us, Lord. Help us not to pendulum sling. Help us not to be defensive. Help us not to be anything that would prevent our eyes from being opened. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Wow, I hope you're ready. Um, This could be an interesting sermon series. Let me tell you a little bit about Timothy, which I think relates to what we're going to want to go to here. As early as 1726, uh, Paul Anton of Howie, he was the first of record to name 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus the, quote, pastoral epistles. And it pretty much stuck. Most people who approach the pastoral epistles, the the sort of uh, de facto assumption is it's kind of like a book of church order. A kind of a, a manual to how to plan a church, how to organize a church. And to be sure, there's much in it uh, that that speaks to those kinds of issues. I mean, you could... It speaks to the issues of the church's beliefs and doctrines. It speaks to the public worship of the church. It speaks to the leadership of the church. I mean, prophet, priest, and king, one, you know, there they are. The five marks of the church are already moving here. It speaks to the social relationships within the church, the community of the church. And it, and it speaks to true godliness versus popular esteem that's given to financial gain and, and the dangers of being uh, in that movement of that day of materialism and things that we might would think of today. So to be sure, there is a kind of polity manual here. But that being said, this way of thinking about the pastoral epistles, especially, I think, First Timothy, obscures what was really happening here and is happening here. It is very clearly what we describe as an ad hoc or situational letter 
Paul is reacting. Paul is responding to the news that he's been hearing from his most, perhaps arguably most favored church plant in Ephesus. A plant which he devoted three full years, which is a, is a church planter in his day was quite long. Three full years. And the concern, it's clear. If we would just step back and listen, it begins and ends the letter emphatically with an exhortation or exhortion to stop the growing influence of false prophets. Chapter 1, verse 3 through 7, as we've just read, and then it returns to the theme in chapter 6, verse 20, respectively. Paul specifically tells us, or Timothy, that is, why he's writing the book. To remain at Ephesus, so that purpose, you may charge certain persons to stop teaching these certain doctrines or devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. This is key. Based on false speculations, what we know, and we won't, I won't, I'll go deeper into it as we go through the letter, but we know that there were two aspects to these false prophets. One, as we heard today read, they didn't understand how to un- they didn't understand the relation of the old testament in relation to the new they had a problem in the way they were making that relationship but secondly they were they were within a class so there's a kind of jewish mythology if you will that was at the source of their of their movement and their false teaching But secondly, we clearly see a kind of gnosis word that's being used. The word there is gnosis, this Gnostic aspect, this idea that there is continuing and private revelations, which Paul will describe as leading to endless speculations, even if they don't even know what they're talking about. You see, the presence of these false teachers was no surprise to Paul. This totally fits the narrative in Acts chapter 20. For there he's speaking again to the Ephesus church. And he says, quote, the presence of these, or, 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 the presence of these false teachers was no surprise to Paul. When he made his tearful farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, he warned them about this. And here's the quote. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves. Now, what did he know? What did he see coming down the pike? These fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, Paul's a deeply spiritual man. He's not seeing this as a kind of, 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 you know, physical battle. Not sparing the flock. In other words, it's going to decimate this church. And so even then, as he left, he, he warned them, I see it coming. Evidently, he's already been encountering it. He sees it coming. And not from outside, by the way, or just outside, as we'll see from inside. And from among your own selves, he goes on to say, will arise people speaking twisted things that will draw away the disciples after them. Fast forward many years later, and here we have this book to Timothy. 
his prophecy was true. And he's sending Penny at Timothy to deal with it. And if you review this first chapter, it becomes clear that these false leadership involve both doctrinal and behavioral issues. Evidently, many were kept capitulating to this influence of the of the false teachers, as we see. Especially, it seems, the younger women of the church. And there's a whole situational sort of teaching about women and the life of the church. And often we see it again as a policy manual. But it's not. It is situational, even if it has policy implications, or he alludes to those. What we envision is a scene in which there were various house churches, wherein each had one or more elders. And the issue was not so much a large gathering then of Christians being split down the middle, but that new, quote, denominations, and I use that word in a literal sense, as in types or brands of churches. New brands of churches were emerging, were forming, and yet by prophecy they were either contrary to or even beside apostolic authority and teaching. The existing congregations were being led astray by their local elders who were perhaps too casual about their adherence to apostolic teachings, and by consequence were especially susceptible the false teaching itself, and how in terms were leading their congregations astray. And so again, First Timothy is less a church manual than it is a very real and focused, situational, urgent letter to his protege, Timothy. Now, who is this Timothy? You see, Timothy is is my true child in the faith, we're told. Notice again the true child in faith. Well, what did he mean by that? Timothy is someone he met as a young man when he passed through Lystra on his second missionary journey. Perhaps he introduced Timothy to Christ in the first place, even as Timothy had learned about it from his grandmother. Whatever the case is, we know that Paul heard of his excellent reputation and invited him to join his missionary team in Acts chapter 16. And Timothy began his ministry under the apostles' tutelage. He calls him like a son because of their close personal relationship. They traveled together to Thessalonica, to Jerusalem. Timothy stayed at Paul's side when he was imprisoned in Rome. They also collaborated to write six books together of the New Testament. Second Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, and Philemon all came from Paul and Timothy, with Paul, of course, serving as the primary writer. But notice carefully then how this book begins. He really gets right to the point, because given this context that I've just explained, how would you expect him to begin? Well, you have probably one of the most clarion statements of Paul's self-identity or vocational identity as you'll ever get. Because he starts Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what is apostle of Jesus Christ over against these false apostles and prophets? You see that's in the background? By command of God, our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, our hope. It's very interesting, this 
little Greek word chi. It can, it can go in many different directions. But here it goes in the direction of command of God, our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, our hope. This is the idea that, that this authority that is given unto Paul, the authority that comes by positive decree, if you will, positive command, To be an apostle, to be the builder of the foundation of the church, as we see in Ephesians, the very passage, the church that he's writing. You remember the letter to Ephesians, where he says the church is built upon the prophets and the apostles with Jesus Christ as the, as the, uh, the foundation of the the prophets and the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. The idea that, that there is this foundational aspect of, of the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing the church, which then will set into place the scheme, the design, if you will, of the whole church that will be built upon it. He is an apostle. Someone who's been specifically ordered or commanded is the language here. Chosen and appointed. And especially here, we see then the mission related to that. So I, Paul the apostle, one who is an apostle not by self-appointment, and that's the key, as you'll see, but by appointment of Christ himself in a very real and supernatural way to Timothy, one that Paul now has authorized to be his emissary. How? We're told later by the laying on of hands and ordination. This is it. I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. Let's look very carefully at what this passage says about false prophets. What are the characteristics? I think I have five here. You, you more, you see if I'm right. I'm not sure. I actually can't remember how many are in my own sermon, but I think it's five. We'll see. Characteristics of the church prophet, first of all, they are distinguished as by teaching false doctrine. This verb here, counter-teaching, strange, foreign, if you will, to some doctrine. But here's the point. The way it's stated, by necessary consequence, implies that there is a norm. There is some corpus of doctrine of which all other doctrine or teaching must be measured. And, of course, that's going to go back to the apostolic foundation. That's key. You'll see that repeating over and over. That is that Paul will describe in 1 Timothy this doctrine and he'll call it the faith with an article which means a body of teaching. The faith. Not faith, verb, believing, adjective, faithful, but the faith. You see what he's, that's the way that Paul's talking about this idea of this false doctrine. There is a corpus of teaching, the faith. The truth, he'll call it later, the sound doctrine, all language in First Timothy, of which all teaching must be measured, he's going to argue. Paul's reference suggests a false teaching which combined, again, these Jewish and Gnostic elements that in a way then, and he's going to say secondly, that represents a misguided devotion. Now, this is an important point. So the first characteristic is they can be measured over against the standard of faith that is derived from the apostolic foundation, point one. Point two, 
they have a misguided devotion. It says, devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. Now, I don't think they thought it was speculations. I don't think the people hearing them thought it was speculations. That would be kind of dumb. But Paul here is saying they are coming from a source internal to themselves. They're just mere speculations. But when he says that, I want you to hear something because because I know that I'm, I'm I'm getting on some real, you know, how do I say it, uh, personal kinds of issues here relative to other Christians we might know, rather than other pastors we may know, that I know personally. And I can tell you that here I, I really appreciated this word devotion. Because most often I would suggest, at least in my own experience, and believe me, I've had quite a bit with this, this movement, if you will, or what I might describe as a movement like this. Um, it, it starts and it really ends in many ways with a devotion to Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm not so sure, Paul, here, but regardless, I'm not so sure we have to, therefore, conclude in our mind, and I think this is what really gets us in trouble, is that to be a false prophet means you're not a Christian. You can be a very devout Christian, even, and teach false doctrine, can't you? You can be a very devout Christian, someone you would respect and love. And enjoy fellowship with and share many wonderful things with in terms of your fellowship and communion with Christ. And yet, in, in a certain sense, this person could be then, uh, in those things, in those ways, particularly as related to these Gnostic, revelatory speculations, and particularly in their lack of just training in terms of understanding how to read the Bible correctly, or how to read the the prophets that have been proven to be prophets, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets, vis-a-vis particularly the apostleship. So we have an issue here. There are certain people in Ephesus who presumably have devotion, even devoted to Christ to a certain degree, which we know historically did exist with this Jewish myth movement and this Christian Gnostic movement. And really their problem was they just didn't have the training or education or they didn't know what they're talking about, in other words, Paul said, as related to how to read the Bible. And they just simply were too reliant upon these private revelations, this inner knowledge, gnosis. Wow. And so they're misguided in their devotion, number two. Number three, and consistent with that statement, Paul says in so many words, these are people that often start out right, but end up wrong. Did you hear it? Verse six, certain persons by swerving from these things, the things that he's just said were good, have wandered away into vain, and there it is, that vain. What he means by vain discussion is not that the topics were themselves vain. He's not saying that these folks were teaching things that, that, uh, you know, are just flat and simple or, or light or weak or anything like that. It's not that the content or, or the, the topics were, were vain. It's that they were vain in the sense that what they were saying they were saying were empty of the truth. They were empty teaching things with great substance even and of great importance, but it's kind of like a 
empty shell, nothing inside of it that was from the source of that truth, the apostolic foundation. But the key here is that they swerved from these things having wandered, an action that loses one's way. They're, they've become, in certain ways and areas and manners of their teaching, lost, at least relative to that right road. They wandered. That's an interesting word. It's to go astray, but it also has the sense that you didn't intentionally do it. It's not like they one day said, I want to be a false prophet. It's not like one day I will say, if I'm not already a false prophet, and again, how would you know? Maybe I'm the false prophet. Maybe we are, Kevin. How would you know? Christians? Really? Are you just going to sit here and listen to me? I mean, that's kind of a death factor. Whatever he says. Why would you listen to me? You see, that's the point here. These wandering aways, it's not like they they show themselves or even own the sims myself. If I am one, perhaps I am, that, that well, you know, today I think I'm going to become a false prophet. I'm going to serve Christ my own way. Really? Do you think that's the way it's going to come at you? Jesus says it quite clearly. I mean, Paul says it early in Corinthians. They come as, as you know, sheep in sheep's clothing. They come as those who, who look as angels of light. And perhaps intending to be. I'm going to presume as much. I hope you will too. I hope you will too. There's no room in this room from this sermon to now become haters, judgmental, condemners, self-righteous, especially not self-righteous people. And pray God I'm not expressing that. And if I am, forgive me. But they've wandered. There's something in me that now again feels, particularly someone who's been sitting in a pulpit now for close to, what, 30 years. Um, it would be really easy. It would be so easy. Do you, do you realize how easy that would be? I mean, you just start getting used to all the apostolic stuff. And you just begin to think that, you know, I've kind of got this stuff mastered. And you begin to think, you know... Uh, I, I can trust my instincts a little bit more. I can trust my my natural abilities a little bit more. I mean, the fact of the matter is, when you've been doing something for a long time, you can pretty much fake it if you want. And I suspect you would never know, at least for a while. Let's just be freaking honest about this. I can come in and I can be having the worst day of my life, and maybe some of you more perceptive types will will feel it, but, but you know... I, you can, you know, in some ways that's a gift. It's a good gift. I mean, I'll never forget. It's still a very impressionable moment in my life when we were a smaller church and had no other pastors and nobody else. And my grandfather, who I just loved, he was probably the most important person in my life, second to my parents. And especially at a time when I was lost as a jayboard, when he died and the family decided to have this very quick funeral and I could not make that funeral. And I sat here just bawling inside. Falling. But I don't think one person would have known it. And it's not because that's me being superficial. I think I did say something in the prayer and probably cried a little bit. But the point I'm saying is that, that, that that's right. You don't want a pastor that makes a funeral about himself. You know, you don't want a pastor to come into a service and make a service about himself. And so 
there's a, there's a balance there. And I, I'm not saying I've, I've lived the perfect one. Maybe I'm blowing it right now. But the point I'm saying is that you don't wander with an intention. Not normally. That's not what he's saying here. So there it is. The third one is they started out right, but they ended up wrong. Fourthly, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either in what they were saying. So here again, these are people who are very earnest. Desiring, that's a good word. It's a good thing to be a teacher of the law. It's a good thing, a noble thing to aspire to the office of bishop, we're told later on in this passage. That is, to be a shepherd of the flock of God. He says that's a noble aspiration. Nothing wrong with aspiring to it. That's not the problem. That's a good thing. But the problem is they, they were, they were uneducated. They, they, or they didn't understand how to read it. There was an ignorance about how to understand the law. Here, referencing the old covenant. And so there you have this interesting thing. These teachers, they were self Appointed or self-willed. Now, of course, that makes sense. Because if the idea of the Holy Spirit speaking into my life, there was a call, no doubt. There was an experience, no doubt. It might have been a burning bush experience to them. It might have been a uh, a real burning bush that, that, that God somehow elevated to an experience to them. It might have been a, a light on the road to Damascus kind of a thing. It really could be. These things happen. But there was nothing evidently, as we'll see, wherein he was appointed except by a personal uh, call to God. And so there you have vain talk. That is talk that comes not from a true thing. And then that leads me to number, I think I'm at number five. Are y'all counting? All right, kids, I was hoping you were counting. That's the kind of thing you would do, right? Because you would run up to me afterwards and make sure you told me. It says, which they make confident assertions. These prophets, and I get it, were confident. And there's a sense in which that's right. Um, I had a conversation. You know who it is this week. Beautiful conversation. And somewhere in the context of it, we were just talking about, you know, uh, the confidence to speak the word of God or whatever. And and there's no doubt about it um, that when I was born again, and it was in a context, you know, similar to what I'm talking about here. Mylon Lefevre, go look him up. He was he at the Mount Church, uh, Parent Church of God. Um, Dan DeHaan, those are my early years as a Christian. And um, there was a really powerful movement of God going on in Atlanta at the time. One of the first, what I'd call, major movements in a long time. And I, I you know, was being part of that. I, I would go to these big meetings, and, and then I'd meet with Dan DeHaan with a few of us. Andy Stanley was part of that, and Foley Beach, who's now the Archbishop of the Episcopal Church, were part of that. And there was this deep sense of, of a personal calling to ministry. And, and that's important. There is a need for that conviction, Later, many years later, after campus ministry for seven years, I was convicted of what I'm talking about now, you'll see, if you know my life. But that sense of conviction should never leave. There's a sense in which every prophet who stands to speak on behalf of God must be confident not in himself, but in God. 
And that impulse, that instinct can be either properly guided of how God calls or it could be misapplied or how God calls. You see, if you're this person Timothy's describing, it's going to come from an inward experience, perhaps then confirmed by those around me. This other way that seems to be indicated is there's going to be some kind of an external exam, an external qualification now that's being passed down through this laying on of hands sort of deal. And and who would be those ones that laid hands but those who were satisfied previous generations of of those. And he's going to say almost those exact words in chapter uh, 3. This idea of, uh, actually in Second Timothy, but this this idea of what I've entrusted to you, you entrust to other faithful men who will entrust to other faithful men, just passing down through the laying on of hands, presumably, and I'll get into that all later. But these these preachers, with this high sense and awareness of the Holy Spirit speaking in with and through their lives, and are incredibly confident in the day of Paul. So where are we at this point? I'm going to take about five or six more minutes here. Do you believe in prophecy today? I have already said you should. And yet we have also seen that not all prophecy is prophecy. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, but prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Test the spirits. How would we prove all things? Well, I one in, in the Charisma magazine, which is a pretty popular magazine within the tradition that that might uh, be subject to this. Again, uh, not that our tradition isn't subject to it in other ways. Um, does you know you would see a list? I won't go to it. Five sort of things. And the reason I would have read them, I just don't want to take the time here, is that they would be things that you would naturally say. I mean, he's basically he's. He's Christ-centered. Uh, basically, he's a humble man, and he's able to listen to others in the spirits of God and others, other prophesies that are coming to him from other people. Um, they, they, uh, you know, on and on and on. Motivated by love, uh, commonly, uh, you know, but they do seem to, you know, they don't use fear to motivate people. They, they use optimism and the and the positivity of the Holy Spirit and the potentials of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I mean, that's that should be true as well. So you get this sort of test, and you go, okay. It doesn't divide much. All these five, though, what was missing, and what I would have stipulated if I had the time, is they lacked any objective discernment. They all require subjective judgment on their motives, on on all those sort of things. And so how are we going to do it? How do you test the spirits? Well, there's two manners in which we can do it in the Scripture. One is you test the spirits to see if it proves true as related to fulfillment. Deuteronomy 18 is often cited in the Old Covenant. Again, I was going to go through all this, but the key thing is that that it requires prophecy to have a predictive element to it. In other words, it was forced upon true prophets to declare the Word of God and to put some teeth into it with a predictive element which they would say, and if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. And if you do this, this will happen. This is, thus saith the Lord. And you know what happens if they failed the test? Even once? I mean, chances are there might be an occasion where 
God's desire would coincide with the prophet's inward voice, if you will, or whatever it was that enabled them to be a prophet. That happens all the time in our lives. Heck, it happens with those old Chinese uh, promises that I get in the Chinese cookie all the time, right? No, but these had to be specific, concrete, predictive. And if just one time, just one time, they were to be wrong, but having declared themselves to be a prophet of God, the penalty was to be stoned. That's it. (laughs) You did not go there. Very easily, wouldn't you think? Now, we're in the new covenant, let's call it, you know, a little more grace. At the very least, if you want to apply that principle, then you would require this kind of specificity um, to discern the spirits, but you would also, uh, at the very least, if even, let's say they got one right, but four, you know, the next one was wrong, whatever, the first time, I mean, forever they're banned from prophesying. Forever they're banned. I mean, that's kind of what stoning does, right? Now, to be honest, and this is really important, I don't personally know anyone, and I know quite a few who would describe themselves as charismatic or charismatic prophets or, or prophets or whatever, or still believes in continuing uh, prophecy, uh, you know, through the inner voice, intuitions, sense, dreams, whatever it might be. I don't know one who uh, would hold to a continuation of God's revelation infallibly in that manner. I'm not trying to create a, a straw person. I don't know one, never talk to one, who wouldn't say, no, there's there's prophecy in Scripture that's, that's infallible, but these other prophecies can be fallible. They can be an error. For instance, Wayne Grudem in his Bible doctrine has a chart of, of a man's head with revelation coming into his head from God on the top of his head and then prophecy coming out of his mouth uh, at the bottom of his head. But the problem is, you see, is what lies, and he's making this point, what lies between revelation and prophecy. What's the problem? Yep, there you got it. The man's head. And that head is full of childhood joys or miseries, hurts, Abuse, pain, biases, propaganda, desires, worldview, social context. Yes, last night's bad dream. I mean, it goes on and on what's in that head. And these will affect what he thinks, which includes what he thinks God is saying to him. We know the heart in Jeremiah is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? One pastor tells the story confessionally, in an admitted way that a, a man in his church went up to a girl and told her, God told me I would marry, should marry you. And the girl had no other way to defend against that. He had an experience to speak of and to be faithful, and she's a little bit attracted to him anyway. She agreed. Think about that. He ended up abusing her horribly. They ended up getting a divorce. Can we really trust revelation, prophecy, as if nothing's in the brain? There's two problems. One, again, there's a fallible notion of prophecy is not what the Deuteronomy 18 passage. There is no concept of fallibility for something to be truly prophetic. And that then, I think, lops off that whole concept. That would be my understanding. 
But the second thing is you can't have it both ways. Either Billy Bob is bringing words from God like the biblical prophets did, or he is not. And if he is speaking with God's authority like a prophet of old and his words do not come true, well, we got to stone him. Or I guess we can try to make a New Testament case for just excommunicating him. Or at least saying, be quiet. No more talking from you as prophet. <laughs> Option two. Prove all things said by a prophet. Test the spirits equals you test or prove against a good and necessary inference from Scripture wherein prophecy has been tested. In other words, prophecy and testing the prophets would look like Acts 17 when Paul and Silas arrived in Berea and they went into the Jewish synagogue and they preached, they prophesied. You know, the Hebrew word for for uh, to uh, prophesy is the same word to preach in Hebrew. To preach or to prophesy. And it says there that, that what did they do? It says they received the word with all eagerness. They expected God to speak to them. Let's remember that. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every... I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, they received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, if I'm Paul, and I'm talking to a church like that, I'm starting to dot some I's and cross some T's when it comes to my biblical exegesis. I'm feeling a little bit on the defensive in a good way that says, boy, these people are checking me out. They are testing the spirit of God that is coming through my mouth. And they're doing it by holding up a standard. And they are testing me by that standard. Second Timothy says in three, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be a competent, equipped for every good work. The point of that is it's sufficient. We don't need additional. And so here we have it. Do you believe in prophecy? Yes, I hope you do. What is it? It's to faithfully preach what is prophetic. What is proven to be a supernatural communication from God. As given to us in the Holy Scriptures. Wherein we can be born again. We can be transformed. We can experience the truth of God. Now, there's this idea that you might not know about in our tradition even. And in most church traditions... The Helvetic says it beautifully. They call the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Wherein the word that is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, notice that lawfully called, proven, examined, etc. We believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. That is really powerful stuff, guys. It's to say that in some sense the word of God, this is a theological discussion that would take hours. So you're going to have to give me the benefit of the doubt on this. Telling you that right now. Especially you elders. Shut your ears, elders. No. Listen to this. The word of God is not complete until it is preached. I got it. Yes. It's once and for all complete in its substance. And its written form is fully complete. But its intent... It's not complete until it is preached. 
where it becomes that sword. How will they know? Unless what? They hear. And how will they hear unless one is sent? Very important. And this prophecy preached to those dry bones, said Ezekiel, has power. Please don't forget that. Why would we be so attracted, do you think, to false prophets? And I'm going to end with this. Well, Christ, of course, warns us over and over. I've already quoted one in the beginning, and I won't go back there, that that we should expect it. But here's, in a very, I think, pastoral way, I want to say I understand why we are attracted to it. I am. I think, first of all, we're attracted to it because it's immediately gratifying. It doesn't require a lot of work, not a lot of testing, not a lot of accountability, not a lot of opening my Bible and reading it and, re- and learning how to read it. By the way, unapologetic commercial, next week we start a course in Bible interpretation that focuses the whole semester on how to understand the old and the new. And all those incredible gifts that you're going to discern. That we not, at least not be those one side of what we're talking about. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's an immediately gratifying thing. Just let me come to church and pastor tell me what to believe. Now this is especially true when, when we live in a world right now that's no longer Christendom, where there's so much uncertainty in the political rhetoric and the social rhetoric and the day-to-day conversations, we are increasingly surrounded in a world that is just way far away from the Christian belief system, the morals, etc. And we're beginning to doubt ourselves and our ability to read the Bible and understand it. And all the more that we want to come to church and, oh, it'd be so nice if there could be a supernatural word of God that comes to me in a manner where I don't have to test it or prove it. Because it's already been done by virtue of this person's experience or inward conviction. It's immediately gratifying to walk out with that kind of confidence. I know what saith the Lord. I'm supposed to get married tomorrow. I know I'm supposed to quit my job. I know I'm supposed to do blank. Man, do I wish God would do that to me. And I don't blame you if you do too. Number two. I think we're attracted to it because false prophecy can easily utilize our emotions as if to validate it in a confusing an emotion with a super a spiritual experience necessarily. In other words, I'm looking for validation and the emotions give it to me. I tried to demonstrate that in the first part of the service. I used to lead music. I mean, Trevor would be just appalled by this. I think I have six or seven chords in my repertoire. I don't know what it was, you know, what is it? D, C, E, F, you know, whatever the other words were and Gee, and you know, and I'm up there leading music. Well, that's another conversation altogether. But I, I remember knowing how to move emotionally. In fact, and I'm not, I'm not so sure that's not right. In other words, when I describe the kind of music that I did earlier, I'm not so sure I want to go so fast and say that's wrong. I'm not so sure that that to praise God and to and to I do think there's something right about it being a a whole life experience event and that there should be uh, an ability to to feel the pleasure and the experience of God etc 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 I I think we need some more of that honestly but big but never ever can that emotion be confused with a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. 
And if you don't believe that, just go to, heck, anything. Go to a concert. Anything with a purpose and clause to it. You see, we distinguish that kind of stuff. We have to say, yes, it's an, it's an aspect of our experiencing the fullness of God and music is a powerful media to do that and to help us. It's a means of grace like all the other stuff that we use where it wouldn't be in the, in the temple of God. And there was great emotional celebration in the temple lest we, we think that that's improper. But we can't go there where I associate on a one-to-one way this emotional experience with God speaking to me. And I used to do it. I feel the Lord, don't you? Amen, says the congregation. Listen to him. Hear him. Open your eyes. What's he saying to you? And what comes to mind is blank in the context of this incredibly choreographed experience. And I walk out. Thus saith the Lord. That's where you can't go. But I understand the need. The use of music and narrative and visual effect is literally can make you cry, shout, pump a fist. And quite frankly, if you're honest, it can do it without Jesus ever being mentioned. And finally, because it is empowering. In a time of great uncertainty about just about everything, this post-everything, post-truth world, we are dying for certainty. The concept of fact is gone. And we are dying for it. And therefore, I can sense and understand feeling alone and isolated in the world that I work in. Oh, how good it would feel to go into a place and, and my emotions tell me God is alive. My emotions tell me God is speaking. My emotions are being filled. And I walk away with this incredible gift of Revived motivation and power. I get it. All the more why we should maybe change our orientation in this tradition and believe the word of God when it tells us, do not quench the Holy Spirit. And we come to church and we read our Bibles with the church expecting my life to change. And believing it with prayer, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that your hearts might be enlightened and that you might experience the power, he said, that expressed, that it surpasses all of your expectation. Don't disbelieve in the Holy Spirit and the power of God, alive, working directly in your life to enlighten you and to empower you unto sanctification and conversion and all that stuff. Don't disbelieve that because that renders you just a stodgy, dead Christian. But believe that that scripture preached and hold your pastors accountable to it. Make us get it down to earth if we're not getting it down to earth. I've heard your criticism. I understand that. But don't disbelieve in it. Amen.